The Rootsland Podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. One of reggae's most powerful and enduring anthems is the Dennis Brown song Promised Land. It reflects on a theme central to the Rastafarian faith. The dream of one day leaving their land of captivity, their Babylon, and returning to the homeland of their forefathers on the African continent, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the Rastafarians of Jamaica, a sacred place in the fertile plains of the Rift Valley in Ethiopia, land gifted to them by the nation's one-time ruler, Emperor Haile Selassie, who according to the religion's faithful, was a great black king from the East, prophesized by Marcus Garvey. The song Promised Land is a one-drop masterpiece, with its thundering bass line and iconic horn refrain. It has been remade countless times, and its Oswad-backed instrumental dub version, among the greatest in reggae music's arsenal. By the late 1960s and early 70s, as the Rastafarian movement started picking up steam among Jamaican artists and musicians, their newly adopted faith naturally started infusing reggae with more mystical and spiritual elements. Struggling musicians would spend their nights jamming under the Jamaican stars. These were sessions powered by biblical scripture, a love of music, and copious amounts of the island's ubiquitous sensimilia. The result, a revolutionary sound the world would come to know as Roots Reggae. Musically, the Rastafarians slowed down and steadied the groove, differentiating it from its predecessors, ska and rocksteady. Accentuated by a kick and snare drum that fell on the first and third beats of a rhythm, as opposed to the standard rock and R&B music that falls on the second and the fourth beat. This timing was influenced by the tempo and feel of ancient African Nyabingi drums, created thousands of years ago by our ancestors. Drumming that was inspired to emulate our own heartbeat. This dynamic one-drop style gave reggae a universal sound that resonated with young people across the globe. It was the perfect blend of conscious, meaningful lyrics and drum and bass heavy hypnotic grooves. The music's popularity cemented by an army of ambassadors and soldiers that fanned out across the world, touring and spreading Ja message. Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, Dennis Brown, Jimmy Cliff, and Burning Spear. Just some of the reggae pioneers that planted the seeds for a movement that's never stopped growing. For the music's legions of international fans, reggae became an escape to a distant time and place, a way to learn and absorb history from those who bore the scars of experience. For the Jamaican musicians, the descendants of African slaves kidnapped from their homeland, robbed from their families and traditions, reggae became a way to take back their identities, a cultural reclamation and a path of self-empowerment that allowed these singers and artists to tell their stories without having them corrupted by the same system that enslaved them. As the Rastafarians of Jamaica read their Bibles in the hot, cramped, war-torn slums of Kingston, it's easy to see why they would dream about one day escaping their ghetto confinement 
on a journey to a good and spacious promised land. In fact, the Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, actually means narrow or confined space. And for Jamaica's oppressed Rasta population, the book of Exodus and Moses leading the slaves out of bondage was not some distant event that took place thousands of years ago. It was their story. No better example of this desire to repatriate to their homeland than the lyrics of Bob Marley's song, Keep On Moving. Bob was at one of his lowest points. He was shaken, on the run. Yet, you can hear in between the feelings of despair and betrayal, an undying belief that one day, he would reach the promised land. I know someday we'll find that piece of land. Somewhere not nearby Babylon, you know. And the war will soon be over, and Africa will unite. The children who live it in darkness have seen the great light, you know. Choo-choo. The first time we hear the phrase land of milk and honey to describe this promised land that God promised the descendants of Abraham is when the Lord is speaking with Moses about the enslaved Hebrews still suffering under their taskmaster's whips in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, he tells Moses, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good, spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. It's so descriptive, so inviting. Of course, God has his reasons. He always does. He was pumping up his boy Moses, preparing him to embark on an impossible mission, to free the Hebrew slaves from the mighty Pharaoh and the most powerful army in the world. Spoiler alert, the Pharaoh doesn't want to let his people go. So God dangling around this idea of a paradise to Moses, a good and spacious promised land flowing with milk and honey for his suffering brethren was just the way to pull at the heartstrings of a man who was quite content living a simple shepherd's life. What God knew at the time was that Moses, our greatest prophet, who would endure decades of hardships and risk everything to bring the Hebrews out of slavery, would never get a chance to enter this land flowing with milk and honey. He would anger God on his journey out of Egypt. The punishment was Moses was forbidden to enter the promised land. The last time we hear about Moses in the Bible, he climbs to the top of Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab. The Lord patiently takes his time to show Moses the promised land, across the valley of Jericho in all its splendor, the entire land of Judah, as far as the shimmering waters of the Western Sea, to the golden sands of the Negev. Then God speaks to his prophet for the very last time. This is the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. There stands Moses, mighty leader and general, all alone on Mount Nebo, watching his children march on and enter the promised land without him. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight 
And we as a people will get to the promised land. It's no coincidence that Reverend Martin Luther King's I've Been to the Mountaintop speech invokes this biblical image of the prophet Moses on the mountaintop. A man whose mission was also to lead his people on an arduous, unforgiving journey to a promised land he would be allowed to see, yet not allowed to enter. Unlike the promised land mentioned in the Bible, a land of Canaan west of the Euphrates, Reverend King's promised land is not a physical place. It's a spiritual and aspirational one where all of humanity share a world of peace and understanding, and every person receives equal treatment in the eyes of governments and their laws, politicians and police, and most important, in the eyes of each other. That night, April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King's voice rang out with such resilience, such confidence, as if he had some secret knowledge, that somehow he had seen this idyllic world a world of love and tolerance, like he'd been there already, walked the streets. And that's in spite of the brutal, unrelenting battle against hate and indifference that he'd been fighting his whole life. Dr. King saw something on that mountaintop. The Lord showed him a vision that most of us still can't see. And when people listen back to Reverend King's impassioned and electrifying words that night, they seem almost prophetic as if he knew it would be his last speech. The very next day, in an act of hateful violence, Dr. King would be shot to death outside the Memphis motel where he'd been staying. On the night before his assassination, Martin Luther King told his faithful audience he would not get to the promised land with them. That may be true, but only because he's already there waiting. You know, the story of Moses doesn't exactly end with what we read in the Bible. The sages and scholars and those who write commentaries on biblical scripture say that Moses petitioned the angels to ask if God could put Moses' soul in the body of a bird just so he could fly over and see his children enter the promised land. Moses thought maybe he found a loophole. God's reply was no. So what does Moses do? knowing firsthand how angry, how vengeful his Lord could be. Moses doesn't take no for an answer. He asks the angels again, over and over and over. Every time, God has the same answer. No. People say this is a sad and lonely end to our greatest prophet, a man who risked everything for his people, guided them for 40 years in the desert to a land of milk and honey, and then has to watch from a distance as they enter. But I don't see it that way. What I see is a man, regardless of the obstacle, never gave up on his dream. Someone who woke up every morning, looked out from that mountain and believed that today was going to be different. It turns out the promised land that Moses occupied until his death was a place named Hope. I remember hearing a radio story about a study being done in order to gain some understanding on happiness. It was a survey being conducted to determine at what point on a vacation are we at our happiest and see if these results gave any insight into human nature and what brings us joy. I would have guessed that the best moments on any trip 
would be seeing an amazing view, laying on a raft in the middle of a pool, or having a pina colada at sunset with friends. But the results indicated we're at our happiest before we even go away, while we're still planning and packing, making sure we have all the right reservations and confirmation codes, thinking about what we're gonna do when we get there. It turns out the anticipation of going on a vacation actually makes us happier than being on one. Once we're there, we're already thinking about coming home, counting down the days till we have to go back to work and reality. Maybe this is the secret that people like Martin Luther King and Bob Marley, Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa knew, that gave them such strength in times of adversity. Inner peace as they made their way to a land flowing with milk and honey. They knew that it's not where we're going, or even when we're going to get there. The true test of life is how we prepare for the journey, and what we're going to take with us when we leave. Packing for the promised land, we don't have to worry about different sets of clothing for temperature changes, what toiletries to bring, or even if they have to be limited to three three-ounce containers. Packing for the promised land requires us to fill our suitcases with moments, little acts of kindness, those small gestures and sacrifices we make for strangers, family, and friends, at times without them even knowing. Unheralded, unrewarded deeds we do, seeking nothing in return, for no motive but love. I think we'll find out, when our luggage is full of these moments, we're already in the promised land. Remember to like, share, and subscribe, and please support our show by downloading the Rootsland original soundtrack, available on Amazon, iTunes, or wherever you purchase music. Don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Henry K. Productions.